Uh, some breaking news before I get into uh, our conversation with our guest in this hour. Let me get to it right quick. Um, we've been talking about this, of course, on this program uh, 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 at a variety of different points because the story kept changing and kept developing. But we are told now that Hunter Biden, son of President Joe Biden, has, in fact, been indicted on federal gun charges. Let me read a bit from an NBC News story that I have in front of me. Federal prosecutors have indicted Hunter Biden, son of President Joe Biden, on gun charges, court documents show. Biden was indicted earlier today in a Delaware federal court on three counts tied to the possession of a gun while using narcotics. Two counts are tied to his uh, uh, allegedly completing a form indicating he was not using illegal drugs when he purchased a Colt Cobra revolver in October 2018. The third count alleges he possessed a firearm while using a narcotic. The indictment says Biden certified on a federally mandated form that he was not an unlawful user of and addicted to any stimulant, narcotic drug, and any other controlled substance. When in fact, as he knew, the statement was false and fictitious. Two of the counts carry a maximum prison sentence of 10 counts. So a maximum of 10 years for two of the counts. The third has a maximum of five years. This is a historic indictment, of course. Um, against the son of a sitting president. It comes, of course, uh, after a plea deal, as you know, uh, might have ended uh, a years-long probe into, uh, into this case, fell apart, uh, just as House Republicans uh, have launched an impeachment inquiry in an effort to seek bank records and other documents from the president and his son. So the timing of this is, um, is interesting. Um, again, the House uh, is now moving forward, as you heard on this program yesterday, with these impeachment uh, uh, inquiries. Uh, Kevin McCarthy has been smacked upside the head by uh, uh, the right flank in his party. And so he's moved forward um, signing off on these impeachment inquiries. And so that's happening on the one hand. Um, his son, the president's son, Hunter Biden, has now been indicted on these fellow gun charges. It's about get wha- it's about to get wackier than wacky. I can assure you of that. Um, the timing of all these things is really interesting. And I used the word historic a moment ago. All these <laughs> all these moments have history written all over them. The, the drama that we're doing with Donald Trump, everything, every day uh, is historic. And it's now historic that the son of a sitting president has been indicted on federal charges at the same time as the House uh, is now moving forward with impeachment uh, inquiries into uh, the president, in part, I think, for just being the president, uh, impeaching Joe Biden for just being Joe Biden. But it's going to get it's going to get uh, strange here over the next few weeks and months. Uh, such is the presidential election season that we find ourselves in. All that said, let me tell you who our guest is in this hour. And then coming forward, we will get started uh, in this conversation. When he was just 20, Joshua Bennett was invited to perform a spoken word poem for President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama. He was on a program at the same White House Poetry Jam where some guy named Lynn manuel Miranda... <laughs> declaimed the opening bars of a work in progress that would soon revolutionize American theater. Of course, that work in progress at the time would later be known as some little play uh, called Hamilton. (laughs) Fast forward 15 years and Joshua Bennett is now Dr. Joshua Bennett. And he joins us in this hour for a conversation about the cultural history of spoken word. And we'll jump straight away into that conversation when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like freedom. 
He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. Right Joshua now. Bennett, thank you for your patience. Sorry we had to get, the, get that uh, breaking news out of the way about Hunter Biden and this uh, fellow indictment. But I thank you uh, again for your patience and for being on this program in this hour. How are you today, sir? I'm well, brother. Thanks for having me. It's my honor to have you. Thank you for for the time. Let me start with that uh, that story that I tried to tee up as nicely as I could. Uh, I know that you can tell it much better, and I want to yield to you to tell me more about that uh, that moment uh, in the White House when you are invited to to perform a spoken word for President uh, Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama. Tell me about tell me about that 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 uh, that special moment for you. I, I assume. Yeah, of course. I mean, the most surreal thing about it probably was that my mother was my plus one. And uh, my mom, uh, my mom is from the South Bronx. So, you know, after I finished the performance, she stood up and said, you see my son up there? He killed it, right? He gets it from me. She said this to Michelle Obama after she pushed her Secret Service out of the way. And uh, it was just an incredible moment, man, because I think in that moment, uh, as a junior in college, getting ready to, to do my finals, you know, for that year, I realized that this is what I'd been working for to that point for my entire life, you know, to have my mother with me in this moment and to tell that kind of story uh, in front of the president and the first lady in a room full of my heroes. Yep. Two things in that regard. One, uh, as, as black men, we all love our mothers. And I think most of us, pretty much all of us, uh, want to in our lives make our mothers proud. I know that's been my motivating um, uh, uh, uh my motivating uh, reason uh, for doing so much of what I've done uh, to make my, my my mother proud, my mother happy, and certainly not to embarrass my mother. Uh, and yeah. I've had I've had occasion uh, occasion many times in my life to make my mother my plus one as well. Um, sometimes to the chagrin of others, I'll leave that alone. <laughs> but my mother, my mother, <laughs> my mother's been my plus one because she's so special to me, and I want to make sure that in her lifetime, given that uh, your mother from uh, from the South Bronx, the boogie down. Uh, my mother from uh, from Mississippi, gut bucket Mississippi, and I just know in her lifetime, um, there are so many things that she has not had a chance to do and never will. But for her son, uh, uh, allowing her to escort him uh, to various occasions, and so there are things I always wanted to make sure she had a chance to see and to do. And I've made her my plus one again at at a number of things. I I, I share that story to ask you how that felt uh, for you to um, to have your mother as your plus one on what I assume was your very first visit to the White House. Yeah, it certainly was my first visit. You're correct in that assumption. And, I mean, I just don't know who else could have been there that would have made the experience what it needed to be in that moment. I mean, even before I stepped on stage, this isn't in the YouTube video, but my mother was with me backstage going over the poem again in much the same way she had when I was a 10 or 11-year-old boy and was writing and memorizing my first poems. Uh, my mother had always been there with me as someone who didn't just emphasize education, but emphasize the arts mm -hmm. um, as a way to express uh, the reason that you're on earth, which is uh, to use your gifts, not for yourself, but so that a certain kind of uh, divine purpose can be expressed through you, right? That was the guiding philosophy of my family. And so she was there with me, making sure I had all the lines. And so when I, I stepped forward, when my name was called, uh, so I could stand and deliver. Yeah. Tell me more about your mother exposing you or certainly um, uh, encouraging you to pursue, consider the arts. Sure. So, I mean, this is a, a major facet of the book as well. I was raised in church, you know, and so both in, in churches in New York City where I was born, uh, but also in places like the, the Baptist Worship Center in North Philadelphia, mm -hmm. where I saw Pastor Millicent Hunter, who was just such a gifted preacher, and really helped me think about the pacing, the tone, the tempo, the power, and the purpose 
um, of the rhetorical arts, right? It wasn't just that we were up there talking. The idea was that you could give people what my mom would call, you know, their word for the week, uh, language as a kind of armor they could carry around with them. And I knew I wanted that even as a young boy, you know, so sitting next to my mother in, the, in those pews, right, in those congregations, I was learning a lesson about the power of human storytelling, right, this kind mm. of ancient art. And uh, even as a young person, I just knew that I wanted that to be braided into the fabric of my life. And so from that time, I would go home, I would improvise sermons in the house. Uh, I started to write poems and memorize them. And uh, from there, you know, I just I just followed that path, that bright line all the way to the present. Yep. I wonder if you and I agree on this. Um, I am more and more concerned, and I was in conversation with some friends about this the other week, more and more concerned about artists coming up today uh, who, for a variety of reasons, have not had the experience of growing up in the or in a black church. And uh, we, we started this hour playing, you know, Stevie Wonder. Uh, and I could play any number of other artists, um, not just in Detroit, Aretha and beyond. But there's something I think that black artists miss in their preparation, miss in the well of things they can draw up on when they don't have the experience of hearing music, hearing preaching, being deeply ensconced, being deeply uh, um, uh, just uh, versed in the ways and the witness of the black church. There's just something, I, I you know, and, and one doesn't have to be a preacher. But every one of us, if you consider it this way, every one of us has a ministry. You have a ministry. I have a ministry. Every artist has a particular ministry. And if, in fact, you have the capacity to call upon all the black church teaches you, all that it exposes you to, all that it gives you in that well, that bag, if you will, to, to pull out and draw upon, it makes you such a better artist. It makes you a deeper artist. It just gives you more, again, uh, to, 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 to call upon in moments when you are on stage uh, in, in, uh, in, 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 in performance. So that, that's my view. And I, and I, I see, you know, back in the day, everybody came out to black church. It's not that way anymore. Uh, and I, I just wonder if you agree that there's just something that the black church gives you that you can't get nowhere else. I mean, brother, it, it's tough to think about a history of black genius without black institutions, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the, the contemporary poet, Frank Ocean says it this way. He says, <laughs> church was the hood Juilliard to me, mm. is what he says, right? And I think at least part of what he means by that that really resonates with me is that it's a place where you learn your scales, right? That the first place I ever memorized poetry and recited it out loud was the black church, right? I was also in a, a all-black independent school in Harlem called the Modern School, mm -hmm. founded by a woman named Mildred Johnson, whose father and uncle, you know, co-wrote the, the Black National Anthem, mm -hmm. oh, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I didn't, I didn't even know the Star Spangled Banner when I was five years old. To me, the National Anthem would lift every voice and sing, yeah, right. right, to earth and heaven ring. And in those spaces, I was learning something about how to carry myself. I was learning about history. I was learning to speak with confidence, clarity, and conviction in front of an audience. And I think all of that helped make me not only an artist, but uh, an academic eventually, and even just a, a citizen, someone who understood himself as part of a tradition and part of a community. And I think if you, if you don't have that, I think it, it's certainly very difficult to, uh, to imagine something like an artistic career. But even I think, how do you understand your connection to the culture without those kinds of institutional experiences to ground you? I think it's a more complicated affair. No, I love that frame, the black church as the hood Juilliard, the black church 
as the hood Juilliard. I I I I am noodling on that, but I, I love that line from uh, from uh, from Frank Ocean. Uh, but I'm also just a little jealous. Um, I, I love the ways in which you were connected. To that, to that Johnson legacy, uh, we we think of lift every voice and sing. Of course, we know it's the Black National Anthem, and I always encourage folks to just slow down every now and then, just read the words. I mean, as you know, that song was uh, the words of that song were written by James Weldon Johnson. The music composed by his brother, J. Rosamond Johnson. So the Johnson brothers wrote that song and put the music to it and taught it to some school kids in Florida for a particular program, uh, and the kids sang um, the song at this at this program, and that was essentially it. But the kids kept on singing that song as they as they moved on to other to higher grades. They kept on singing that song as they graduated. They kept on singing that song. And little by little, others started to learn this song courtesy of it being taught uh, for one particular performance. And you look up a few years later and everybody knows the words to this song courtesy of these kids in this one program. And it ultimately ends up being the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. But we got to thank James Weldon Johnson and his brother, Jay Rosamond Johnson, uh, for, for bringing that to us. And I'm so glad you were educated at a school connected to that, 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 that Johnson legacy. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful story that I love to tell for those who don't know how the, uh, the song uh, came to be. There's a bit of the backstory of Lift Every Voice and Sing. Um, back to your story, though. Um, so we talked about that night at the White House. What I have not asked you um, is what what your what your your, your 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 performance was. Your poem was that particular night. Sure. Yeah, the poem I recited that night was a poem called Tamara's Opus. It was about uh, my older sister who's deaf, and uh, how as a, a young child I struggled to learn sign language. So in some ways, it was a an apology. I mean, American Sign Language is also woven into the performance. So it really was a way for me to think about forgiveness and the connection between love and forgiveness. And really the idea that every day you're alive uh, is another chance to get it right. Mm. right? It's another chance to um, to repent in a kind of deeper etymological sense, thinking about the Greek metanoia. You can change your mind. You can change your thinking. And so that's really what that poem was about for me, um, even at the age of 20, just thinking, well, every single day is a chance to grow and change and, uh, and get this thing right and do better. So I figured if I had an audience in the White House, that was the message I wanted to share that day, one that really cost me something and that demanded that I give an account. All right, I want to give the, uh, give the audience, uh, since you went there, um, I want to give the audience just a taste of what you just described. Here is um, Joshua Bennett. He wasn't Dr. Joshua Bennett then, a junior in college. But here's a taste of what he did uh, at the White House that night with um, President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama. Tamara has never listened to hip-hop, never danced to the rhythm of raindrops or fallen asleep to a chorus of chirping crickets. She has been deaf for as long as I've been alive. And ever since the day I first turned five, my father has said, Joshua, nothing is wrong with Tamara. God just makes some people different. And at that moment, those nine letters felt like hammers, swung gracefully by unholy hands to shatter my stained glass innocence into shards that can never be pieced back together or do anything more than sever the ties between my sister and I. I waited, was patient numberless years, anticipating the second her ears would open like lotuses and allow my sunlight senses to seep into her insides, make her remember all of those conversations we must have had in heaven back when God handpicked us to be sibling souls centuries ago. I still remember her 20th birthday 
Readily recall my awestruck 11-year-old dies as I watch deaf men and women of all ages dance in unison to the vibrations of speakers booming so loud that I imagine angels chastising us for disturbing their worship with such beautiful blasphemy. Until you have seen a deaf girl dance, you know nothing of passion. There was a barricade between us that I never took the time to destroy. Never for even a moment thought to pick up a book and look up the sign for sister, for family, for goodbye. I will see you again someday. Remember the face of your little brother. It is only now I see that I was never willing to put in the extra effort to love her properly. So as the only person in my family who is not fluent in sign language, I've decided to take this time to apologize to Mara. I am sorry for my silence, but true love knows no frequency. And so I will use these hands to speak volumes that can never be contained within the boundaries of sound waves. I will shout at the top of my fingertips until digits dance and relay these mental messages directly to your soul. I know that there is no poem that can make up for all the time we have lost. So please, if you can, just listen. Thank you. And then his mama went off. <laughs> His mama, his mama went off, pushed the Secret Service, and made sure Michelle Obama and everybody else knew that was her baby that had just killed it on the stage. Um, when, when you hear that all these years later, that yeah, what 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 do you, what do you hear now? Now, young I sound, man. The yeah. cadence of my voice, everything. It's uh, it's of a moment, <laughs> you know. It, mm -hmm. And it reminds me of so many of the poets that I grew up with around that time. I think a lot of us had voices that sort of echoed off one another. So it's um. It's a good memory to return to. Yeah, were, were were you in the room? I mentioned I mentioned that night at the White House, uh, this poetry jam, um, where you performed and, and killed it. As uh, as the audience just heard a, a bit of a, a taste of what you did that night. This is the same night that this guy Lin Manuel Miranda declaimed the opening <laughs> bars of a work in progress at that time that would revolutionize American theaters. I said earlier that piece, of course, came to be known as Hamilton. So my question, very quickly, were, were you in the room when he did his thing that night? Oh, brother, of course. Yeah. I, I saw it during, during sound check. Right? Okay. So, okay, so I, imagine. <laughs> yeah. Please, go ahead. No, no, no. Uh, finish your point. Go ahead. Imagine what? Imagine what? I mean, uh, imagine, you know, you're 20 years old. I got on my Ninja Turtles t-shirt, right? And this, <laughs> this really, you know, warm, kind of friendly guy. I don't know if you ever met Lynn. I yes. Most, yeah. Kind of thought, one of the most generous, thoughtful guys on earth. And yeah. then he just gets up there and I mean, he's singing, and then he starts rapping about Alexander Hamilton. I mean, because he's told us a little bit during soundtrack about what he's going to get up there and do. Mm -hmm. But it was quite surreal to see it, you know. And then Esperanza Spalding was there and played mm -hmm. the bass. James Earl Jones was there and did a monologue from Othello. So I think also I was just looking around the room and just seeing all these kind of chosen representatives of their art form and feeling yeah. like, okay, I'm one of a handful of poets who've been chosen to represent spoken word here today. I need to get up there and do my thing. But, yeah, Lynn, you know, tore the house down, uh, yeah. <laughs> both in the sound check and after it, as you can see online. Yeah, so we, so so fast forward a few years, uh, and Hamilton becomes all that and then some. Um, everybody's fighting to try to get in to see this thing. Uh, what did you make of what it became, given that you saw it in its infancy? I loved it, man. I went to see it a couple times, in no small part, because one of my best friends in the world, a poet named Carvins Lassant, eventually became George Washington in Hamilton. Mm. So, 
you talk about a kind of full circle story. I mean, <laughs> I started a spoken word collective with my big sister about a year or two after the White House called The Strivers Row. And Carvins was one of our founding members. Um, after the White House, Lynn got tickets for me and my mom, again, to go see In the Heights on Broadway. Mm. And then we went to go see Hamilton. So it really was incredible. I mean, I made real friendships that night. You know, Lynn and I stayed in contact. We're still in contact. Saul Williams was in that room, a mm-hmm. poet who I'd grown up watching. Um, and I've had the chance to interview and, and, you know, share stages with over the years. So it, it's been really amazing to think about all the different branches that have emerged from that one night uh, in Washington, D.C. No, it's amazing uh, what one moment in your life can do. I've, I've been fortunate in my life to have a few moments like that. And the inspiration um, that comes out of moments like those to just push forward uh, and to use every bit of skill that God has blessed you with, um, uh, it's it's a, it's a thing of beauty. Uh, and I'm so glad that you were tapped that night to be uh, in that room and so 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 pleased to hear that so much good has come out of that experience for you. Uh, that was when, again, he was just 20. Uh, he wasn't Dr. Joshua Bennett then, but he is now. And he has a, a, a new book out. It's called Spoken Word, A Cultural History. And when we come forward, I look forward to getting uh, uh, more into his text. You are listening to Dr. Joshua Bennett right now on Tavis Smiling. From the Merck Park with love, love, this is Tavis Smiley. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Joshua Bennett, um, tell me the ways in which that moment in the White House um, 15 years ago now, essentially, uh, propelled you. Obviously, you were already on your way, but when you get exposed to that kind of moment, when you have... uh, um, a, a, a situation where you're surrounded by that kind of excellence, that kind of brilliance, and you get a chance to put yours on display. Um, you leave a room like that, I'm sure, levitating. You don't, you ain't got to, you ain't got to walk out. You can just fly out, just soar out of the room. So I'm, I'm curious as to, to the ways in which I'm, I'm working my way up to your academic um, success. Of course, how, how did that experience propel you professionally? Sure. I mean, it changed everything in some ways, right? So after I left the White House, I actually had the opportunity with my sister to start an arts company called The Strivers Row. Mm -hmm. We put together a collective of poets and singers, and then we traveled the world. Uh, Went to South Africa a couple times, went on a UK tour, uh, and really I had the chance to get together with my friends that I've made in high school and college and create these YouTube videos that got, you know, to get them millions of views, Mm -hmm. you know, and really... At least uh, part of what I argue in the book is we were one of the first collectives, first poetry collectives to really tap into the digital landscape in that way. So that was incredible. But also to the point you made about that, that levitation, you know, I I felt that Mm -hmm. in that moment. But what was startling was later that night, there was a very sharp drop off because I thought to myself, well, how will I ever top this? Mm -hmm. And what I realized later was that you know, at the performance level, there was no point in necessarily chasing that. I mean, I had other great performances, certainly. I continue to, I I think, (laughs) to this day. Mm -hmm. But what I realized, really the way to continue to traverse that hill was just to live a dignified, abundant life. Yes. Right? To find purpose in communities and to continuously give the gift away. I'm so glad that we started this conversation talking about Black institutions because I was trained up not to think so much about prodigies, but about prodigious gifts. Mm. And as a gift, as something that is not for you, right? A good gift is to always be given away. That's why you have it. Mm. And so I think that White House experience really helped to grow me up quite young, right? Because the idea was, we're not necessarily just trying to go up from here. We're really trying to go forward. 
and we're trying to go out. And what you said about ministry, I think, is also the exact right tone and frame, right? You're supposed to go out and speak peace and joy and love and life into people's lives. It's not just about necessarily having the best CV or trying to be on the biggest stages from here on out. It's how do I use this opportunity to get into the kind of spaces I want to be in, to talk to the communities I want to talk to, and uh, hopefully to find some some peace of mind, you know, through yeah. the art form and share it with other people so they can do the same. So that that's really how it changed. Yeah. You know, there was a professional change, but there was also a deep, I think, psychological change yeah. um, and an emotional change as well. I've seen a number of people over the course of my life and career who get access to a moment like that. They They are at the epicenter of a moment like that. Uh, and rather than do as you have done, which we'll talk about in a moment here, uh, and get on the path that you are on and, and the trajectory that you've been on, they end up, mm, how might I put it, being spoiled, being seduced by the normative white gaze. Once you get a taste of that normative white gaze, you can be seduced and spoiled by it. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I'm glad that didn't happen for you, but I've seen many others uh, who that happens to. So um, how how did you avoid that? I don't know how much credit I could take for that. I think I just had people around me who love me enough to tell me the truth mm-hmm. and to take me to task when I get off the path that I've promised myself I would follow, mm-hmm. right? So I, I've had dreams that I've articulated. I mean, this is another thing, I think, being raised in a black church, we had this this kind of scriptural phrase and frame, right, which was to write down the vision and make it plain. Oh, yes. And so from the time I was quite small, I'd always articulated my dreams. And part of what happens when you get into that habit is that the people who love you know your dreams by heart, mm-hmm. right? So if my friends would see me, if I said, you know, I want to be a professor and I want to go to this many countries and perform and I want to write these books, the people around me would say, well, brother, I don't see you doing that right now. <laughs> I see you doing this other thing, maybe, you know, trying to chase YouTube views or be hip or, you know, you're kind of getting off the path here. And I'm really thankful that I had those communities and, and that I had that drive that I think my parents, my older sisters, my older brothers, my younger brother helped cultivate in me, that my best friends helped cultivate in me. Even my friends from the neighborhood when I'd be outside with them, they would say, look, man, if anybody starts trouble with you, you call us, mm. right? You do school. School is your thing. Don't don't be out here in the street trying to squabble with anybody, right? Yeah. We'll handle that for you because we love you and we share the vision that you and your loved ones have for your life. Yeah. So I think that's part of how I avoided it. Yeah. How, how do you process that your friends, is this, is this in the, is it, where, where's, where is it, this, is this, this, uh, this the boogie down or where, where are you living at the time? Your kid. You grew up. <laughs> yeah, so I, I lived in the Bronx until I was around five or six years old, and then we moved to Yonkers, New York. Yeah, okay, so, got it. Yeah, uh, yeah. We, we thought it was upscale, but if you know Yonkers, <laughs> yeah, you know I, that's, uh, uh, I, I know I Yonkers. I DMX in them, you know. Yeah, Ray, I know, Ray, 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 I know Ray, Yonkers, Ray, DMX, Mary J, all of them. I know, I know Yonkers. Um, let, let, let me just ask, though, I'm, I'm curious. What do you make in retrospect? Because as a as a as a professor, which we'll get to, I, I know you know this 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 uh, frame, uh, this narrative well. What do you make of the fact that your friends told you that school is your thing? You do school. Anybody messes with you, you let us know. Don't be out in these streets squabbling, as you put it. What do you make of the fact that that's how your friends treated you? That school was your thing, and they encourage you to do that versus all these black kids who get chastised by other black kids for acting white because school is their thing. Yeah, that was just never my experience, you know. And we have sociological data, I think, to push back on that that widespread narrative as well. 
my friends cared about me and they knew me well, mm-hmm. right? They knew the future I wanted for myself and they knew the future that I wanted for me, right? So like any good friend, they said, look, man, don't chase all that. That's not your gifting, right? As my mother would say about me singing, right? I used to walk around the house trying to, you know, belt like uh, like Teddy Pendergrass. My mom <laughs> said, that's not your gifting, brother. You stick with the poem, right? And I think <laughs> my friends thought the same thing. They were like, yeah. look, man, like, don't, don't chase that. Like, I know that's one kind of paragon we grew up with, right? The kind of tough guy in the street that has hands and that that had its own form of beauty and magnetism for us. Yeah. But I think my friends also knew that I loved the books. And it wasn't just something I was good at, but it was something I cared about a lot. So I just chalk it up to these are people who knew me well enough to know yeah. that that was my best chance at a good life. And I think we live in a, in a country that has a, has a lot of hoods, yeah. right? And I think in those hoods, a lot of those children are taught that their best chance at a good life might not have anything to do with school, mm-hmm. right? Might not have anything to do with a pursuit of a certain kind of professional or even spiritual vision. So I think I was just incredibly blessed and incredibly fortunate yeah. that whether it was in the church or even in the street or even in my home, I had people who looked after me, and I'm a product of that care. Yeah, Let me ask you right quick, and I'll tell you why I'm asking in 10, in 10 seconds. Is your precious mother still living? Oh, yes, sir. Okay. I ask that because I'm curious to know how she processes being in the White House with you at that moment when you were still in college at the age of 20, and you're now being uh, an acclaimed, award-winning poet and professor of literature and distinguished chair of the humanities at MIT. How's your mama process all of that? It's funny, man. I think my mom, if you really ask her, she'll say, I always saw it on you, son. Mm-hmm. You know, And that I never know whether she's just kind of improvising that or really believes it deep down. Because I think, so if you go to my Instagram, there's a picture. Uh, from December 1992, it's Christmas Day. I have on a Princeton Tigers sweatshirt, mm-hmm. right? I got my PhD from Princeton eventually in 2016. But I think about that picture sometimes because I wonder why in the world did I have that sweatshirt? And I remember I would watch the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and I knew Uncle Phil went to Princeton. So I wanted to go. <laughs> and for whatever reason... <laughs> There was no point in my life where my mom said, well, you know, no one in our family has ever gone to Princeton or I'm the only person really or one of the only people who has a college degree. She said, well, you know, you got to get good grades, honey, to go to Princeton. I said, yeah. She said, okay, well, study hard. And I just think it's always been her sense that I could do whatever I put my mind to. Right. And uh, my mom didn't make that up out of nowhere. You know, she had a a praying grandma and she's her namesake, right? So my great grandmother, Carrie, my mom would tell us when we were little that she prayed for us years before we were born, right? She would pray for her, her grandchildren's children. So I think a lot about what it means to walk in the prayers and dreams of elders. Mm. Um, you know, at MIT, I'm the first black full professor in the history of my department, you know, um, and I don't think about that as, oh, that's so cool. I think about all the people before me who were qualified yeah, yeah, for that, yeah. but didn't get the chance, yeah. right? And I think about the fact that now I have to do my best to clear the clear a path, clear a way mm. for more and more folks to get in, you know, who've done the work yeah. and uh, have so much to contribute, not just to MIT, but to, to human knowledge yeah. as such, you know, but from the, the walls of the academy. Yeah. Somebody said, won't he do it? Won't he will? Won't he do it? Won't he will? I am always tickled by the things that motivate and animate black people. Tony Morrison told me one time over dinner, she said, Tavis, black folk, it made me feel every emotion possible. But I'll tell you one thing about black folk. I said, what's that, Professor Morrison? She said, black people have never bored me. 
They have never bored me. Uh, and we are not a boring people, and our stories are not boring. To hear him say that he decided to go to Princeton because Uncle Phil went to Princeton. Uh, <laughs> more with Dr. Joshua Bennett when we come forward on Tavis Miles. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically black. Black, black, black. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. Dr. Joshua Bennett is our guest in this hour. His new book is called Spoken Word, A Cultural History. Uh, watching my time here, Dr. Bennett, tell me what uh, what you're trying to get at, what the reader is going to see you get at in this book, Spoken Word, A Cultural History. Yeah, really the book is a 50-year history of spoken word, the spoken word sound in the U.S., and it has many stops. We stopped in uh, the Black Arts Repertory Theater and School in Harlem, not too far from the modern school I mentioned before. We go to the New Eurekan Poets Cafe, um, and we end up on YouTube. Really, I'm trying to trace the ways that several small collectives of friends and collaborators help create this thing called spoken word in the United States and help carry forth its legacy into the future. Mm-hmm. And my mama makes an appearance as well. So I'm, I'm sure she does. I am mad at her. What, 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 do you, what do you think the impact of spoken word has been? I mean, I think certainly um, one would have to, to credit, uh, you know, uh, Deaf Poetry Jam. Uh, um, with this, um, but what, what, what's, what's, what's been the impact you think of spoken word since it, since it's coming to the consciousness of of everyday people in this country? Absolutely. I mean, if you think about someone like Nikki Giovanni, for instance, mm-hmm. Mary Baraka, Intazaki Shange was one of the founding members of the New Yorkian Poets Cafe. So, part of what I, I argue in the book really is that when you look at the spoken word tradition, it's not so much about people becoming professional poets, mm-hmm. right? It's that they take that skill set and do all sorts of things, right? You can become a politician like Ross Baraka, right? Mm-hmm. You can become a, a musician like Jill Scott, right? You can become a, an academic like myself and also Jamaica Osorio, who is one of the other youth spoken word poets at the White House with me that night. So part of what I'm articulating in the book is that there's a kind of toolkit you get from spoken word, the ability to just stand up in front of a room full of strangers, sometimes five or ten, sometimes thousands, and you get to make an argument. Right? You get to proclaim a worldview with a certain kind of intensity and clarity. And I think that's a useful you know, skill set for any person. Right? This at least is the pitch I make to parents right? who say, well, you know, I want my kid to be a neurosurgeon. And I'm like, well, listen, this is a useful skill set to have in that mm-hmm. pursuit, being a lawyer, being a teacher, whatever professional or personal path you want to follow, the ability to memorize large bodies of text and to communicate it at the pace of speech is incredibly useful. And it's hard for me to imagine the path where I become a professor without the spoken word tradition uh, to help give me those basic yeah. skills and a community that held me up um, and helped me shine. So this is uh, this is just the Tavis Smiley show. It is not the White House, but I'm going to uh, put uh, Professor Bennett on the spot and ask him when we come forward in our remaining moments to give us a piece. Uh, one of his poems, his book, once again, is called Spoken Word, A Cultural History. You'll hear Dr. Bennett in his own words when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. This is getting good. Yeah, man. Tap is smiling. Smiley continues when we come forward. Forward, forward, May Fresh Daily in the Mert Park, Los Angeles, California. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Just a few minutes left in this hour with our guest, Dr. Joshua Bennett, author of the new book, Spoken Word, A Cultural History. I now yield to him to deliver uh, in his own way whatever piece he wants to share with us. Dr. Bennett, the mic is yours. This is America Will Be After Langston Hughes, and it's from my father. 
I am now at the age where my father calls me brother when we say goodbye. Take care of yourself, brother. He whispers a half beat before we hang up the phone, and it's as if some great bridge has unfolded over the air between us. He is 75 years old. He was born in the throat of Jim Crow, Alabama, one of 10 children, their bodies side by side in the kitchen each morning, with a pair of hands exalting. Over breakfast, I ask him to tell me the hardest thing about going to school back then, expecting a history I have already memorized. Boycotts and attack dogs, fire hoses, Bull Connor and his personal tank, candy paint shining white as a Confederate ghost. He says, honestly, probably having to read the Canterbury Tales. He says, eating lunch alone. Now I hear the word America and think first of my father's loneliness of the hands holding the pens that stabbed him as he walked through the hallway, unclenched palms settling onto a wooden desk, taking notes, trying to pretend the shame didn't feel like an inheritance, you say democracy, and I see men holding documents that sent him off to war a year later, Motown blaring from a country boy's bunker as napalm scarred the sky into jigsaw patterns, his eyes open wide as the blooming blue heart of the light bulb in a Crown Heights basement where he and my mother will dance for the first time, their bodies swaying like rockets in the impossible dark. And yes, I know this is more than likely not what you mean when you sing liberty, but it's the only kind I know or can readily claim. The times where those hunted by history are underground and somehow daring to love what they cannot hold or fully fathom. When a stranger is not a threat, but the promise of a different ending. I woke up this morning and there were those on television lauding a wall big enough to box out an entire world. Families torn with the stroke of a pen, the right to live, little more than some garment that can be stolen or reduced to cinder out of tyrant's whim. My father knows this, grew up knowing this, witnessed firsthand the firebombs, the clan, multiple messiahs love soaked and shot through, somehow still believes in this grand blood-stained experiment, still votes, still prays his children might make a life unlike any he has ever seen. He looks at me like the promise of another cosmos. And I never know what to tell him. All the books in my head have made me cynical and distant, but there's a choir in him that calls me forward. My disbelief, built as it is from the bricks of his belief, not in any America you might see on network news or hear heralded before the start of a football game, but in the quiet power of Sam Cooke singing that he was born by a river that remains unnamed, that he runs alongside to this day, some vast and future country, some nation within a nation, black as candor, loud as the sound of my father's unfettered laughter over cheese, eggs, and coffee, his eyes shut tight as armories, his fists finally unclenched as if. He were invincible. No words. That's how you close the show. Dr. Joshua Bennett uh, has been our guest in this hour. His new book is called Spoken Word, A Cultural History. Dr. Bennett, I celebrate your journey. All the best to your precious mother. Thank you for the time, sir. Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you. My great honor. appreciate you more.